Good morning again, Faith Fellowship. As you can see, we are continuing on in the Genesis uh, series. For those who don't know me, my name is Bill Heidel. I'm here to uh, share with you from the Word this morning. It's always been my great privilege. Uh, we attended this church uh, several times, I think, over the course of about 10 years, and it's always been my home. And every time we come back, I feel like I'm right at home from, with everybody here. And so I uh, hope if you're joining us for the first time that you'll consider this your home going forward. There's no better place that you could be planted Right? And if God's brought you to this church, I think you find, you'll find it'll meet your needs and his will in your life. So without further ado, as we do go through Genesis, though, I think I have to acknowledge sort of the state of the world today. Is anyone like just tired of hearing about all the negative news? Yes. Right? It seems like there's nothing else. And I know, you know, you hear from them, that's what sells. But there's just so much. And it's really easy to be heavily burdened, right? So I hope that today, as we go through this, that you'll find some solace in that. You'll be able to sit in here, have this be your oasis from the world. But also, is anyone surprised uh, that mental illness is on the rise because of the state of the world, right? No one should be surprised. I think after COVID and coming out of that, we've heard a lot about that as well. All right. Well, I've got some statistics as I was looking through that to say, well, what are those statistics and where, are the, where is that and to what extent I wanted to share with you this morning. So a study by researchers from the New York University Langone Medical Center published earlier this year in the Journal of um, Psychiatric Services found that more Americans than ever before suffer from serious psychological distress. It's something they term as SPD. Now, the researchers analyzed a federal health information database and concluded that 3.4% of the U.S. population, that's more than 8.3 million adult Americans, suffer from some form of SPD. That's an amazing number right today. Now, according to those, the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the CDC, which conducts the National Health Interview Survey on which the research is based, SPD combines the feelings of sadness, worthlessness, restlessness that are hazardous enough to impair people's physical well-being. Meaning it's going to show up somewhere else in your life, right? It's not just a mental, if you think, or psychological impact. It, it can literally show up in your physical well-being. Now, previous survey estimates had put the number of Americans suffer from SPD at 3% or less. Now, another study by the National Survey on Drug Use and Mental Health found that nearly 30% of the adult population now suffer from some type of mental Ill illness. 30%. One-third. Okay, one in every three persons that's sitting here. You might think your spouse is crazy, but the likelihood is it might be you, <laughs> all right? Now, see, it, kidding aside, it is a serious issue. Now, that's up from 18.1% just a few years ago. So drastic increase. A 2010 study done by the National Institute of Mental Health found that 
For the first time, youth are disproportionately affected by mental disorders. The study found that one in five youth are affected by at least one type of mental disorder. According to the NCSA researchers, the percentage of youth suffering from mental disorders is even higher than the most frequent major physical conditions in adolescence, including asthma and diabetes. The study found more students are reported being in distress than four years ago. The study found that one-third of all post-grade school students are depressed and anxious or battling other mental health issues. It found that 8% fewer students felt their health was in good or excellent condition. It also found that the number of students who seriously considered suicide was now at 18%, up 8.5% from 2013. Now, speaking of suicide, the numbers don't get any better here recently. A study at the Pediatric Academy Society's meeting this past May found that the number of children and teens admitted to children's hospitals for thoughts of suicide or self-harm have more than doubled during the last decade. Unfortunately, there are numerous studies all reporting the same trends, a dramatic rise in mental illness and suicide. It's particularly true for children and teens. So why the dramatic rise? What's changed in our society? Doctors cite a number of reasons, including increased parental pressures, increased performance pressures, reduced face-to-face -face interactions and social supports, breakdowns in family units, gender confusion, terrorist activities, global decline, divisive politics, and a general lack of trust in media and other authoritative sources of information. An uncertain or pessimistic view of the future almost always accompanies these reasons behind suicides. So I started by saying how much of us were like tired of hearing negative news, and then I dump all this onto you, right? Sounds like I'm doing negative news too. It's really not my goal. My goal is to say we have a serious issue, and when you look at everything that can impact you from the outside world, if you put your focus on that outside world, right? You can join these statistics very easy. We see it. We all know people, right? We all have family members. And it's really great that we can run to God's word for cover, right? You and I who have a faith, who have a relationship, have something that the outside world desperately needs. Now, that does not mean that we are totally insulated from the same things that are happening. It means we have a solution and a place to run and a place to rest. So that's what we're going to do today, is we're actually, in this Genesis study, going to focus on chapter 15, verses 1 to 21. Let me hit the next slide in here. All right. And during that time, we're going to look to Abram and his struggles and God and God's response to his struggles for some guidance. Right through it, I hope that we will learn something more about Abram, a lot more about God, and something more about ourselves. Does that sound fair? All right. Well, before we get in there and unpack the wisdom that's in these scriptures... 
Bow your head with me and let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, uh, we recognize just how bad this world looks. And we also understand that you said it's going to get worse before it gets better. But Father, you were there with us through that fire. We don't attempt to go through life ourselves, But truth is that regardless of what we intend and attempt, we seem to just fall that way. And Father, we acknowledge just a few short weeks ago, we read in your word and studied where you created this paradise in the Garden of Eden. We know this wasn't your intent, but we know you are sovereign. The impact of sin has ravaged this world, and you bring a solution. Father, we love you. We ask you to deal with our shortcomings. We ask you to bring us closer to you. And we ask you that you would take our eyes off of the things of this world that are so fleeting and place them squarely upon you and the things that are everlasting. Father, quicken your word to our ears, our hearts, our hands and feet today. We ask this thing in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So let's look at this. If you have a Bible with you, Let's go ahead and open this up. I'm going to read to Genesis chapter 15, 1 to 21. Tell you today, and those that know me know I like to put a lot of information for you, right, to help you understand. This is one of those passages that I think you're going to want to take some notes. And the reason I say that is because as you read through this, it's easy to read through this and totally miss tons of things. So I'm going to try to bring out some things that click to me and share them with you in hopes that maybe it lets you look at the scripture in a fresh way and you can really dig in and see what God's up to there. So let me get started. Genesis chapter 15, verses 1 to 21. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans, to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all of these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down to the carcasses, Abram drove them away. 
As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterwards they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, and the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. There's so much there, as I said. So much for us to unpack. But let's start right in that first sentence. That first verse is so full, packed with info. The first thing is, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. After what things? Right? Quick refresher. Right? Abram's gone through a lot of things already. Seth introduced him to you. Right? Abram here, and God says to Abram right off the bat, fear not. I submit to you that that fear not is exactly what Abram needs to hear. Why? Why would he need to hear fear not after what you've already learned about him? His life has been transpiring. He's getting older, right? Truth be told, he's not the man he thought he would be. He's very aware of all of his faults, isn't he? I mean, he just came through this whole thing with Sarai. She's not my wife. Can you see how Abram, even in the service of God, might be questioning, am I doing the right things? I'm not seeing God show up in my life to the level I thought he would. Right? Am I being faithful enough to earn the promises? Am I going to mess something up? Much less deeper questions. Can I count on God? Yes, I know he's sovereign. He's the Lord of all. But will those things he promised me ever come to pass? See, one of the things I love about God's word is it's real. If you're an author and you're just writing this stuff to try to convince people into a religion, you wouldn't write it this way. You wouldn't show this person, right, who is the founding father of the Israelites, or the person revealed by the Jew, or revered by the Jewish religion for years and years and generations and generations, Father Abraham at the time. You wouldn't show him this frail. You wouldn't show him, right, with this lack of faith, with this chink in his armor. Right? With doubt. 
God, by saying fear not, is saying, Abram, you can trust me. Right? Don't worry. In essence, doubt not what I tell you. Now, when I was growing up, and many of you may be able to relate to this, I grew up Catholic, and I confess to you, I had this really bad theology. I had this theology that if anything went wrong, it was because I did something wrong and God was punishing me. Any of you have that thought before or grow up that way, right? (laughs) Um, I can remember it was like so bad in my family. You could be walking, stub your toe in the kitchen, right, and, and go, ow. And my mom would go, oh, God's punishing you. What did you do? For a stubbed toe, really? Is that what God is? And for a while, I grew up with this idea of God that was not biblical, where he was upstairs, right, in heaven as the global taskmaster, just waiting for me to mess up. And then, boom, he's going to punish me. Right? Oh, you had this thought, Bill. That's not a very good thought, right? Punishment. Oh, you did this. That wasn't very nice. Oh, I gave you a chance to share the gospel with somebody and you were scared, right? Punishment. It's like all he had to do all day was hand out punishments. The Bible, as I mentioned, shows no indication that. We're going to see a little bit different in how God is dealing with Abram and his shortcoming. It's easy to worry. There's so many things in life that can go wrong. Life's hard. I often share with my wife, Lisa, that I feel like the smarter you get or the more time you spend on earth or the more you realize all the things that are at play, like the greater your reason to worry comes to play. Right? It doesn't mean there's a good reason, but you start understanding the way things operate in society. You start really understanding how pervasive sin is. Right? And you start really understanding that there are very little people in your life that you can truly count on. And it is really easy to become sarcastic, depressed, and be one of those statistics that I mentioned early on. Right? You may have come in here this morning feeling that way. Right? If you came in here this morning looking, and maybe you're at your rope's end, and you're just like, you know, I don't know what I'm going to do, how I'm going to hang on. You're in the right place. Stick with me. Romans 8 says, For now, therefore, there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by flesh, could not do. Matthew gives you this advice, or or reports Jesus giving us this advice, says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. And that's where we get into God's second important word I highlighted here. Not only does he say, fear not, Abram, But he says, I am your shield. Now, what's the connotation there? What is he trying to get through to Abram? God is saying, 
I will stand in between you and your enemies and protect you. When you're reading this, you can really take for granted what that is. Right, we can just hear that. Yes, God's our shield. Right, we can sing it. We can worship it. And I encourage you, do you really believe that? And if you believe it, could you really meditate on that a little bit? Think about that. The God of the universe, the sovereign God, right, Lord of all, Adonai, he basically is between you and your enemies. That doesn't sound like the God that punishes, right, that I was talking about. It's starting to sound like a different God here, a God who comes to Abram in his weakness. And then what is this? He says, but your reward shall be very great. And a lot of different translations of the Bible say you're, you will be an exceedingly rewarded or I will be your exceeding reward. And I like those words better because I really think it explains what God's saying to Abram here. What he's saying, same thing that Jesus was saying in Matthew, is don't worry about the world. I got this. Right? I am for you. Who can be against you? The same thing we sang. Right? He's telling Abram, I get it. You're worried. He's telling us today, I get it. You're worried. There's things out there that you can worry about. But I will shield you. I will be your reward. And if you delight in me, I will exceed those things of the world. Ah, In down times, that's not hard for us to believe. Right? Can you believe that in your good times too? Think back to like when you were most joyous, when it seemed like everything was going right. Maybe you got that big promotion you've been working for at work, right? The feeling that that gives you, it's a great feeling, but a joy that comes from a relationship and a right relationship with God exceeds that. And it exceeds it in many ways. What comes with, say, that big promotion? Doesn't take long if you've gotten it right to realize, man, there's a lot more responsibility that comes with that. Your shoulders may sag a bit under that pressure. You start feeling fatigued, right? You realize the weight of the things. And if you don't have that right relationship with God, you can flounder there. You may start realizing, wow, in this world, as soon as I get any kind of achievement, there's the other crabs in the basket theory. Do you know what I mean by that, right? We're in Baltimore. Every time a crab tries to crawl out of that bushel basket, what do the rest of the crabs do? Lank onto them, right? Try to pull them back in that basket with them. That's what it feels like sometimes when you look around and the world does to you, right? Every time you succeed or you have some kind of success in your life, there's a very few number of people who are truly for you and with you. And there's a huge crowd of people who are pulling you back in. It's easy to get overwhelmed. But God goes on. Right, with that shield saying, if you turn your eyes upon me and away from the world, right, you will have an exceedingly great reward. Some of you probably already thought about this when I was talking about that. Right, the great, in the words of the great hymn, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. O oh soul, are you weary and troubled? No light in the darkness you see. 
There's light for a look at the Savior and life more abundant and free. Those words are so great. Are they sweetness to your soul? They are to me. Right? And when things start pressing in, this is where I'd rather go than a psychiatrist. <laughs> All right. But it goes on. Verse 2, right? God encourages Abram. And Abram, like every good Christian, just takes those words, goes out and does it, right? No problem. Well, maybe not. <laughs> Abram says, oh, Lord God, what will you give me for I continue childless? So how are you going to be my exceeding reward? How is a relationship with you, right, going to exceed my desire because I'm childless, right, to have an heir? That's what he's saying. And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus, a Syrian. So all the great things that you've given me up to this point are going to wind up going to Syrian. And Abram says, behold, you have given me no offspring. Now we get right back to that Adam quote, right? In the beginning of Genesis where he says, the woman to which you gave me is the one who gave me the apple. Right, right away there's this blame game. So we see Abram's no better than Adam. No better than you or I. He's not special, so special, right, that God only blesses him and blesses him in this big thing. God blesses people who are not special. God blesses everyday, ordinary people like you and I. He decides how to do that. But it's almost as if Abram can't hear what God's saying to him because of his worry of dying without an heir. And there's a lesson for all of us. We can worry and meditate so much on those things that we don't have that we don't hear God for what he does have in store for us. All right? We can spend all of our time focused on the earthly things that we need, that we want, that we've prayed for him, Right, that he seemingly has not answered. And we could spend no time or little time in the Bible reviewing his promises, looking at his character, right, renewing our courage by looking at the examples that are out there. And in that way, we almost do the opposite of Romans 8, don't we? We start feeling overcome by the world instead of being overcomers ourselves. It happens. It may have happened to you. It happened to Abram. Goes on the story though and says, Behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars. If you're able to number them, then he said to them, to him, So shall your offspring be. This is a famous part of scripture, right? If you do any kind of Sunday school, right, the kids draw this. You see it over and over again, but let's really think about this a second. What's going on? Abram's having trouble believing, and God has taken the time to reassure him, to encourage him, to refocus him, and to do something we'll call dream building or giving him a vision. Habakkuk tells us that people fail for lack of vision. God's giving him a vision. 
of what is to come. It's as if all the darkness that is in the immediate present, God is rolling away so that he can see what's yet to come. Right? During the day, how many stars can you count? Not many. Sometimes you can see them, right? They're bright. And there's a couple here or there. But when you roll away all the lights, and during this time, certainly, there's no street lights to contend with. There's no city lights. There's no big buildings. So when it's dark, it's dark. And that sky lights up with stars. And in that way, God reminds him of the promise he made back in chapter 12. Right? A promise to give him land. To give him a name. To make him a great nation. And to bless all the nations of the earth through him. And he says, your descendants will be like these stars. Encouragement. And then what happens? And if you get one verse out of this that you want to hold on to, remember, write down on a piece of paper, put on your walls, get a, a dry erase marker, put it on your mirror in your bathroom so that you see it and you read it and you got your face next to it, right? At, at least twice a day. It's this one. It says, and he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. I love that phrase. Right? Does this phrase say, he believed the Lord and therefore was righteous? Well, you've got to read a little bit deeper. Right? You could say that, but if you read deeper, this thing is really, he credited it to him, is the way some people explain it, right, in translations. And so he believed the Lord and the Lord credited it to him as righteousness. Gave him credit. It was beyond him to be righteous. But the Lord credited to him for his belief. So we see this as far as our part is to believe him through everything else that goes on. And in that, in believing him and believing on him, it's credited to our accounts as righteousness. Now this is so important. Right, highlight it where you can. And can you do that today, though? Can we cast off, as believers, whatever is burdening us? Can we give it to God to shield, to take away? Can you give it to God to maybe leave in place longer than you would like to have it in place? Right, can you give God your burden and say, go ahead, God, make it bigger if that's what you want? Well, I'm getting hard now, <laughs> right? Because then, what's that indicate if you can't? That indicates that we start, we're sliding back into where Abram was. Pray. Keep focused on the Lord, and those things will change a bit, right? But what if you can't? What if you just can't get there? Right? Does that mean you can't be a Christian? Does that mean... Oh, you're not worthy. You might as well give up. Does that mean because God, you, don't, you can't believe him, he won't count it to you as righteous? Let's read on a bit. Seven. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur, the Chaldeans, to give you this land to possess. What's the significance there? God's reminding him, I've done great things for you already, and I'll do more for you. 
Don't we all need our Ebenezer, that marker, that thing that we can go back to? When you're in the middle of just being pressed in on all sides, do you do that? Do you go back and take an account of all those things that God did for you? Look back over it, right? It strengthens you. It helps you. It builds your belief. But he said, oh, Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? So scant one verse after it says that he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteous, he's right back to where he was. He says, give me some proof. And so, of course, God punishes him, right? No, that's the old theology I'm talking about. God meets him again. Right? He says to him, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, a young pigeon. He brings them all of these. He cuts them in half, laid each, over, each half over against the other, but he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of the prey came down on the carcass, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell on him. Now, when you read this part of the story, you might say, oh, what the heck is going on here? Right? All this livestock killing and blood and staging of the carcasses. Yeah, that's Old Testament stuff, right? That's back there when they were Neanderthals, early man, right? All of this stuff is barbaric that he's doing. I tell you, there's some symbolism there. And I can also ensure you that Abram didn't have the same questions as you and I. Abram would have recognized that practice right away. Right? Abram would have said, oh, wait a minute. God's going to ask me to cut a covenant with him. Cut a covenant? What's a covenant, you ask? Well, in ancient times, it's the way landowners, who were called vassals, and kings would make a contract. First, they would state their conditions, and then they would go through this elaborate ceremony to bind each other to the contract. Now, if you think about it, not that different from today, right? Lance understands contracts, and there's a kind of underhanded joke in there, right, when you think about it, but it's still true. Anybody else do contracts maybe for work? Part of my role at work is doing vendor contracts for services, right? And what do we do first? Man, we spend weeks and weeks, it seems, with our corporate attorneys, the person who we're contracting with, their corporate attorneys. We talk about all these conditions, right? What are you going to deliver? What happens if you don't deliver? What are you going to do then as a result of that? That's what this is all about. Let's read on a little bit, and I'll explain it. It goes on, it says, The Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and then they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterwards they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace, and you shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete." Now you probably say, yeah, that sounds like a contract, <laughs> right? Very specific, getting right to the terms that are involved here. Goes on, says, when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. Wow. Okay, now it's getting weird. 
Well, on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, and all the otherites. We'll just cut it short there. Right in the area. Now, at this point, i got to slow down a little bit because there's a lot there that we're not familiar with and it's hard to sort of relate to. Right? Let me explain two things to you. First, what a normal covenant ceremony would look like. And then two, what's different about this one that we need to catch? Huh? Here's a bloody diagram for you. All right. First thing he was told was to gather the animals and lay them out. So Abram did. Now I want you to stop and think about this though. This is no easy feat. It's not as easy as it sounds, right, just from reading it. This is the Iron Age, right, moving into some steel. They're talking about knives that they've got to do this with, makeshift saws. This is not a pleasant experience. Right, if we were to do this today, what they would do is probably euthanize the animal first, right, in a humane way, likely freeze them, and take a bone chainsaw and cut them in half and be done with it. Right? Not so. And I only do this and explain this graphic nature and delve into it a little bit because I think it's important that we get how graphic it was. Okay. Literally, these animals had to be slaughtered in such a way that their blood would spill out in the middle and make a pool. That pool was called a blood path. So they would have to hack and cut and kill these animals, rendering their flesh, causing great pain, splattering blood everywhere, the noises, the smell, the stench, the wailing, everything. Right, for these animals that you knew for at least three years you cared for them, once three years old, right, all just ripped apart, killed there in front of you and laid end over end right on top of you to make this blood path in between. And what's the significance of this blood path? Well, in these ceremonies there was most frequently, once all those terms laid out, the two people would walk through there. If it was two landowners, right, the vassal would walk through the blood path and walk out the other side. And when he got to the other side, it was as if he was saying, if I don't adhere to the terms of this contract, let this be done to me. Let my flesh be torn. Let my flesh be ripped apart. Let me be severed in two, right? Let me be made a spectacle of. Let my blood be poured out for people to walk through. That's what he's saying. I'm guessing people probably held true to their contracts a little bit more back then than they did today. Right? Just a wild guess. Okay. But it in those other, if it's a landowner to landowner, after one walkthrough, then the next one will walk through to signify the same thing. In the cases where a vassal, a landowner, was pledging their fidelity to a king, right, to become part of the kingdom. The landowner would walk through there, and the king would not. What do you think Abram's expecting to have happen during this? He's expecting he's going to walk through there in front of the king, 
right? And the king will not, and he will pledge his fidelity so that he can get the terms of these contracts. Would have been a no-brainer for him. That's what we expected. But that's not what happened, did it? What happened was the smoking fire pot goes through first. What's the significance of the smoking fire pot? Maybe I should answer it this way. Who does the smoking fire pot represent? Let's think. We're going through Genesis, right? How about uh, smoke on Mount Moriah when the Ten Commandments are given? Isn't that how God appears at the top? The whole nation sees the smoke, right? How about when he's leading the Israelites out of Egypt, right? During the day, a pillar of smoke. At night, a pillar of fire. How about if we go to Isaiah and we see Isaiah's vision in the temple and he comes into the presence of God and what happens? The temple is filled with the smoke for the presence of God. How about every time the Lord brings his presence onto the tabernacle for the Israelites, right? Smoke descends on and smoke fills up those areas. Really easy. That's God walking through. So, wait a minute. Abram... Where's he? What's his part in this? He was made to sleep. Right? And a fearsome darkness came upon him. What's the symbolism there? Death. What's Abram's part in this? He's dead. He's watching this happen. He can do nothing. He can contribute nothing to this covenant. He's just watching it. And then... When it's Abram's turn, if it would be at least a fair exchange, to walk through that blood path to ratify the covenant, right? To hold up his end of the deal. What happens? This fire torch goes through. Also representing God. Right? The flame. Again, the burning bush. Right? The pillar of flame that leads the Israelites through the desert. Right? What happens when the Holy Spirit descends upon the apostles on Pentecost, right? Tongues of flame over their head. So God goes through once, and then in Abram's path, God goes through again. In essence, saying, Abram, if you cannot uphold your side of the bargain for whatever reason, let me be cut in half. Let my flesh be torn. Let my blood be spilled everywhere for people to walk through. Incredible. No contract has ever been made that way. No covenant. All this cutting and blood. Right? Is it ringing bells for some of you? Right? You hear people say, I need to be covered by the blood. What does that mean? Covered by the blood of Jesus. Jesus' blood was spilled. Jesus paid the price of the contract. You're already free. You're already paid for. What are you striving for? What are you trying to earn? Which Abram's role in this again? It's as if he's dead. He's watching. All of this take place. God so loved Abram that he showed him he'd be willing to pay the price at Abram's place. When Abram failed the next time, he would be willing to be slaughtered 
His blood drained from his body to form the blood pass so that Abram could live on forever. One quote here for and at this point I'll ask the worship team to make their way to the stage. Um, and this is an associate professor from uh, the Reformed Theological Seminary and also an adjunct at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Matthew Barrett, he's written a couple of good books. If you see his name out there on a couple of books on the Holy Spirit and other things, very good. He says this, and I think it's the most eloquent way to describe this covenant. He says, so there's an unconditionality to the covenant. Human obedience is still essential, but it's God himself who will make sure that the covenant demands and promises are fulfilled. In other words, while it's necessary for Abraham's children to be obedient if they are to enjoy all the covenant blessings, the fulfillment of the covenant does not ultimately depend on man's work, but is due to God's grace and mercy. Oh, Heavenly Father, what kind of gift can you give us? How free are we? We don't fear death. Right? If you've turned your life over to God, if you've accepted that he did this for you personally, what can they do to you in death? A lot easier to be encouraged. If you haven't done that yet, come see one of the elders, come see a deacon, talk to the person next to you, find out if they can help you and tell you about how to do that and get that right today. Right? Believe that in your heart. Jesus says in Revelation, he stands at the door and knocks, and if you open it, he'll come in. And I'll tell you, if you're sitting here and you can believe all that, that means he's knocking. You see the truth in this. You understand that. It's calling out to you. He's talking to you. He's knocking. Right? Answer. And the rest of that verse says he will come in and dine with you and sup with you. Or he will have a relationship with you. If I can substitute, you, he will be your exceeding reward in life. Amen?